1: William Shakespeare is England's greatest playwright and arguably the most famous author in the English language. By the time he died in 1616, he'd written close to 40 plays, among them incomparable works of history, tragedy and comedy. Or had he? What if the man behind Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth and Julius Caesar was not William Shakespeare at all, but another author, hiding behind Shakespeare's name so as not to reveal his true identity. Welcome to the fourth episode of Conspiracy from History Extra. I'm Rob Attar, and today we're going to be looking into the theory that the wrong man has been taking the credit for these works of genius. Why do some people doubt William Shakespeare? And is there any real evidence in support of these claims? Joining me to explore this theory was Dr. Paul Edmondson, Head of Research for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and the author of numerous books on the playwright and his works. Today we are looking at this theory that William Shakespeare didn't write the plays that are attributed to him. Where can we trace the origins of this idea to? Is this something that was around at the time he was writing? Well, thank you, Rob. First of all, I'd like to express surprise
0: that anyone should think such a thing, that Shakespeare didn't write the plays attributed to him. Uh, what, a, what an extraordinary question to ask. Why is it extraordinary? Because there's masses of evidence to show that Shakespeare Stratford-upon-Avon is the the, the author of, of the plays attributed to him. But, you know, we can get to that in, in, in due course. It really began with a very intelligent American woman called Delia Bacon, who visited Thomas Carlyle in 1853. And she already had in mind then that Shakespeare was not the author of the plays, and she writes the following about her visit. My visit to Mr. Carlyle was very rich. I wish you could have heard him laugh. Once or twice I thought he would have taken the roof off, and first they were perfectly stunned. He and the gentleman, spedding, he had invited to meet me. They turned black in the face at my presumption. Do you mean to say so-and-so, said Mr. Carlyle with his strong emphasis, and I said that I did. And they both looked at me with staring eyes, speechless for want of words, in which to convey their sense of my audacity. At length, Mr. Carlyle came down upon me with such a volley. I did not mind that in the least. I told him he did not know what was in the plays, if he said that. And no one could know who believed that that booby wrote them. It was then that he began to shriek. You could have heard him a mile. There's quite a lot going on there. But what is revealing is that Delia Bacon was extremely excited about the, the plays of Shakespeare, his genius. And she couldn't accept that somebody of Shakespeare's social background, intellectual background, produced the work attributed to him. And then a few years later, in 1856, she persuaded the vicar of Stratford-upon-Avon to allow her to stay the night in Holy Trinity Church, where Shakespeare is buried, with a pickaxe and spade, because she wanted to open Shakespeare's grave, convinced that her idea of there being some document in there that would reveal the true identity of the authorship would be found. She didn't, in the end, open Shakespeare's grave. She was too frightened to do so. But she really did set the ball rolling. She won the attention of Nathaniel Hawthorne, of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Her work is extraordinary because she's really appreciating Shakespeare's political ideology, which was advanced for her time, and for a female at a time. So I want to sort of praise Delia Bacon's intellect, at the same time as noticing that, as far as the authorship is concerned, it was misguided intellect. She wrote about Shakespeare and Bacon and others, almost as if they were a committee, a collaborating committee on the plays. And this is years before Shakespeare's authorial collaborations with other playwrights. Became, you know, properly noticed and written about. So she was ahead of her time in that, in that sense. And she's been mi- much misunderstood, which is why I think, you know, one should be, one should be kind and praise her for, for her originality. And as she uses a word herself in that recollection, audacity. The American Bacon Society was founded in 1885 as a result of this. And she got the ball rolling.
1: Is the underlying argument behind this doubt to Shakespeare's authorship essentially that his social class or his background, his education, doesn't match the quality of the plays and the themes and the, the knowledge that's embodied within them? That's some of the arguments that are used against Shakespeare,
0: but they're different arguments for sometimes for different alternative nominees for, for the authorship. Stepping back and just thinking about the cultural and literary context in which Dealey Bacon got the ball rolling. Uh, we might notice the rise of detective fiction, Edgar Allan Poe, for example, tales of mystery and imagination. We might notice Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. So questions about you know where we came from, where did the plays of Shakespeare come from? We might notice the ongoing popularity of Gothic fiction, which was a few decades earlier but but still still very much around with its codes and its ciphers and its subterranean passages we might notice a questioning of religious orthodoxy based on new discoveries in in geology for example and what what became paleontology and archaeology was in its infancy but but very much examining the past and where things came from so it's a revisionist time and a time of new kinds of fictional forms perhaps coalescing in the way that then allows intellectual inquiry to to change, to develop.
1: I wonder if you could introduce us to some of the main alternative candidates for the authorship of the Shakespeare play. I mean, who have typically been put forward as the real Shakespeare, if that's the right way of saying it? Well, uh, we've already mentioned uh, Bacon. I,
0: I should have mentioned that she, I should have been really clear that she was saying Sir Francis, Francis Bacon was the main protagonist, even if he he was also collaborating with others. That was the hint, the the main point of influence on on later writers to take up Francis Bacon. So he is put over and he's always put over with a sense of uh, cipher and codes Because he invented ciphers and codes himself, a a great code master, people wanting to put put forward Francis Bacon have gone to Bacon himself to work out a methodology in order then to say, well, and then you can apply that to Shakespeare and you can unlock Shakespeare. So there's the coded nature in Francis Bacon's candidacy, as it were. Another major nominee in this strange and eventful history is Christopher Marlowe wonderful playwright and poet of Shakespeare's time. And he was first mentioned in a novel in 1895 by Gleason Ziegler, an American writer. And the novel was called It Was Marlowe. Now the problem with Marlowe, the immediate problem with Marlowe is that he was killed on the 30th of May, 1593. So the plot thickens. Because in order for Marlowe to write the plays attributed to William Shakespeare, he's not allowed to have been killed by Ingram Frizer in a sort of tavern brawl in the presence of Nicholas Skiers and, and Robert Pooley in Deptford. And what was not known about at the time when Ziegler was writing was the coroner's report of Marlowe's death, which is dated the 1st of June, 1593. This was discovered in 1925 by Leslie Hodgson, Shakespeare scholar. And that really does put paid to to Marlowe's, you'd think, candidacy, but not so. Generations of gainsayers have have been pursuing Marlowe's claim as author of Shakespeare. So you have to see that his death was a, a fake, that it was maybe some political espionage intrigue, the motivation of Sir Thomas Walsingham, who uh, knew Ingram Frizer, who was paying Ingram Fraser uh, for various work. So, you know, there's doubt there if you want to go looking for it, and there's mystery there if you want the plot to thicken. So, Marlowe then disappears, and some people have him going to Italy, which is why they can say, oh, well, a third of the plays are set in Italy. So, Marlowe knew about Italy. And uses Shakespeare as a front man. Why? Because Marlowe couldn't bear not to articulate his genius. He had to keep writing plays. <laughs> so he uses Shakespeare as a, as a, as a cover for his, his true identity. So some people end up reading the works of Shakespeare as though they were thinly veiled Marlowian autobiography. Prominently taken up uh, by Calvin Hoffman into the 1980s. And in 1987, there was established the Hoffman Prize. And anyone can enter. And it's a a large pot of money held by King's School Canterbury, which is Marlowe's old school. And an annual sum is given to anyone who writes a compelling essay about Marlowe being the author of the plays, or anyone who writes about the relationship between the work of Marlowe and Shakespeare. And if you prove absolutely uncontrovertibly that it was Marlowe, you get the jackpot, the entire endowment (laughs) Is given as, as as prize money. And then a third prominent candidate is uh, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. He was first mentioned in 1920 by the regrettably named J. Thomas Looney. And he was reading the plays again biographically. And again, other writers spotted this and and followed in Looney's footsteps, Dorothy and Charlton Ogburn in 1952 were fascinated by aristocracy and therefore applying that biographically through de Vere onto the works of Shakespeare was for them a very attractive thing to do. De Vere was born in 1550. He was taken into care by William Cecil, Queen Elizabeth I's private secretary. He married Cecil's daughter, Anne Cecil in 1571. And he, we know he wrote poems, at least 16. And he died in 1604, which ought to be a major stumbling block to his candidacy. Because, well, Shakespeare's plays, many of them are written after 1604. And what what's key here is, if you admit that Shakespeare post-1603 is a Jacobean playwright, that his plays such as Measure for Measure, uh, Macbeth, All's Well That Ends Well, Cymbeline, The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Pericles, Coriolanus. If you admit that they're post-1604, and admittedly the plays of Shakespeare are difficult to date, but one way of dating them is to find in them fashions of Jacobean playwriting, which other playwrights around Shakespeare are also employing in order to body forth stories on stage, then the Earl of Oxford obviously just becomes a nonsense. So you have to have him writing all of the plays before 1604 and then sort of dispensing them. Someone's dispensing them, I guess, from some sort of safe, maybe, uh, in order for them to be performed, uh, as they are noted in performance, some of them. At the globe um, and elsewhere. So this hasn't stopped people supporting the Earl of Oxford. Only last evening I was having dinner with friends, and they'd been to a local literary society. And the literary society had allowed an Oxfordian into their midst to tell them all about Edward De Vere and the and as a as a candidate for the author of Shakespeare's plays. And I I said, Well, you'll never guess tomorrow I'm recording a podcast about this. <laughs> so it was quite a quite a good moment of rehearsal t- talking to them about this. So this this continues. I mean, uh, the last I looked, there are at least seventy seven alternative nominees, who also include Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir Folk Greville, the Earl of Rutland and Derby, Queen Elizabeth I herself, James I, and you know the the, the list continues to grow. You'd think that the more names that were added, people would realise that it becomes far less probable that any of them wrote the plays. It's a, a case of diminishing returns from a mathematical point of view. But that doesn't deter new names being added quite regularly, not in recent times. Uh, and I have some notion why that might be the case, which we, we could talk about later if you wished. But clearly it's, it's a meme which I think probably isn't going to go away. And it changes with time and reasons for suggesting alternative nom- nominees change with time, as we've just been hearing about.
1: So I understand with Marlowe why he might have wanted to take the pen, pen name Shakespeare because he was, didn't want people to know perhaps he was still alive. What is the supposed motivation of some of these other candidates for not just writing under their own name?
0: Well, I think for the Earl of Oxford, it was that it, it wasn't you know, respectable to be writing for, as it were, the public theatres. Therefore, he needed somebody there as, as a front man. So this is all, this is key to many of the alternative theories that Shakespeare somehow has agreed. And one assumes for some financial settlement to put over himself as, 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 as author of these plays when it's, it's really somebody else. But there's another problem here, uh, Rob, which is to do with collaboration and playwriting. And the idea that Shakespeare was a lone genius really started to vanish in the 19th century when it was thought that, for example, the play of Henry VIII, All Is True, was a collaboration with John Fletcher. But we know that Shakespeare collaborated in his time with John Fletcher, on The Two Noble Kinsmen, on the lost play Cardinio, for example. So he was a collaborator. But other plays have now been thought about as collaborative since the 19th century. So not only Henry VIII, but, for example, some of the Henry VI plays, uh, Titus Andronicus, uh, Middleton's hand has been spotted as an adapter in Macbeth, possibly in All's Well That Ends Well. And the moment you admit that is a very likely fact, and it, and it is it is likely, of course, because collaboration was the default model for playwriting in Shakespeare's time, many of the plays uh, are collaborations then you can't have an alternative lone genius being the, the 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 true author of the plays it it just doesn't wash because you're not replacing one lone genius with another you can't do it and as as dame janet Sussman once said on this issue you know what actors can't keep secrets they've ne- they've never been able to you tell an actor something and the, the chances are it'll be all around the company Um, you know fairly quickly so if Shakespeare was keeping a secret then he had to do so extremely well. eBay Motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits LED headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs eBay
1: Motors has it and with eBay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep
0: your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
1: So beyond the fact that his name is is on the plays, which is clearly quite significant, what other evidence do we have that William Shakespeare did write these plays?
0: Well, his name is on 39 title pages across 16 plays, um, and the two narrative poems from 1593 and 1594 name him as author. A special notice might be uh, made of Shakespeare's sonnet, 1609, never before imprinted. But he's also mentioned by many of his contemporaries as a playwright. Here's a roll call, and it's not exhaustive. Henry Willoughby, William Covell, Richard Barnfield, John Weaver, Thomas Freeman, and Niskolica, Henry Chettle, William Camden, William Barksford, Leonard Diggs, John Webster. In one of the plays about Parnassus, Anonymous, one of the characters says, Oh, sweet master Shakespeare, I'll have his picture in my study at court. So his popularity was very prevalent and very much noticed by his contemporaries as as a writer. It's important to notice also 1598, 1598, Francis Mears lists 12 of Shakespeare's plays and appreciates him in comparison to Ovid, honey-tongued, mellifluous soul of Ovid in, in Master Shakespeare. And in the next sentence, Mears goes on to write about the Earl of Oxford's dramas. So he obviously saw them as separate people in 1598. We might notice corroborative evidence, such as Shakespeare's theatrical shareholding, which is well-documented for the Globe and, and Blackfriars theatres. He's acting in plays by other people, for example, Ben Jonson's plays. We might notice the recent discovery, and recent as in about five years ago, Hen- Heather Wolfe, with the Folger Library in Washington, D.C., discovered earlier iterations of Shakespeare's coat of arms, which now makes it possible to link the coat of arms with a gentleman in Stratford because one of them named him, named him as, a, as a playwright on the coat of arms, which is, you know, that, that, that's, that ought to be a killer fact. There's Ben Jonson's conversations with William Drummond of Hawthenden over the Christmas and New Year of 1618 to 1619, in which he's talking about his friend, Master Shakespeare, and some of his mistakes in his plays, giving Bohemia a seacoast and a desert, for example, in The Winter's Tale. Admiring Shakespeare as well as criticizing him, loving him this side of idolatry, for example, but noticing his limitations as well. So, you know, when you look across the evidence, Shakespeare emerges uh, as a very uh, alive and kicking author of the time. And then there's the posthumous evidence too. So. 2023 is the 400th anniversary of the publication of Master William Shakespeare's comedies, Histories and Tragedies, known as the First Folio. And that begins with Commendatory Verses by some of his contemporaries, Hugh Holland, James Mabb, Leonard Diggs. Leonard Diggs talks about Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. The work of Lena Orlin, Georgetown University, in recent times, has, has really done some very fresh and important research on the monument, which is a demi-figure placed on the wall just above Shakespeare's grave in Holy Trinity Church, and says that although it has posthumous aspects, it was produced in Shakespeare's lifetime and therefore is really a life portrait depicting himself as he wanted to be remembered for posterity, which is very interesting since the inscription on the bust, the demi-figure, talks about him as leaving living art but page to serve his wit, since all that he hath writ. He's resting on a writing cushion and and holding a quill. And he's compared a Socrates in mind, a Virgil in art, and a Nestor in council. So there's lots of evidence, both from Shakespeare's lifetime and posthumously, which, and this is a key point, each aspect, each piece of that evidence must be refuted entirely and convincingly, Every single bit of what I've just been talking about, not just saying, oh, it's all just nonsense, because anyone, any anyone can say that, but you have to go through every single piece and say why it's uh, not the case before you can even think about it
1: being anybody else. Now, as I, as I think I alluded to earlier, the argument that I've certainly heard the most about it not having been Shakespeare is that his background was not sufficient to write the plays. He wasn't well enough educated. He wasn't worldly enough to know some of the things that, appear in his plays. I mean, what argument do we have against that? Well,
0: it's true that when we look at uh, evidence for Shakespeare's education, the grammar school records, the King Edward VI Grammar School in Stratford-upon-Avon, which was founded in 1553, and which he went to with other of his Stratford contemporaries, they don't survive. And that's not unusual for grammar schools of the period. But the earliest records of that school start in 1800. But that doesn't mean to say that nobody went there before 1800. (laughs) For goodness sakes. So you then look at the plays carefully, and T.W. Baldwin has demonstrated this and, and, and others since, and you can see that you only needed a grammar school education in order to write the plays attributed to William Shakespeare. You didn't need a university education to write the plays. Marlowe went to university, the Earl of Oxford went to university, Francis Bacon went to university, Shakespeare didn't go to university, didn't need to. The flourishing of English literature in Shakespeare's period is thanks to the humanist grammar schools which were established under Edward VI. It's one of the greatest gifts this nation has ever given its sons, and that's what led to the flourishing of great writing in the period. The young minds that were taught to think, taught to meld language together for powerful effects, to realise that language is power. That's the kind of mind that Shakespeare had formed through the grammar school education. So it's not the case that he wasn't educated sufficiently. He was very much uh, educated to a high level of learning in in classical literature and the arts of language.
1: So do you think that this this idea that Shakespeare didn't write the plays that someone else did, is this... A legitimate academic debate? Is it a reasonable discussion to be having? Or is it more like some of the other conspiracy theories that we've been discussing on this podcast series so far? I think it's a
0: conspiracy theory, but I think it's only become such when other similar gainsaying theories and ideas have been made in light of it. Uh, we might identify it as as perhaps the first conspiracy theory. Uh, and there's an argument for that therefore I don't think it's a legitimate use of academic time. I think that what worries me is that uh, at least two universities in the world have taken it up as an academic cause. And that's very dangerous ground, I think, because it, you're really denying the past if you say that Shakespeare didn't write the plays of Shakespeare, because you have to reject all the evidence that I've just been alluding to and mentioning. And is is that a legitimate thing to do? Well, I I don't think so, because if you start doing that, then you can just rewrite the past as your own fiction. Well, anybody would like to do that, I'm, I'm sure. Lots of people feel they can do that. Why? Because it gives them some sort of sense of control, some sort of posterity by putting their name alongside great names of the past and looking at things aslant and askew and in contradiction to the accepted understanding. And once it infiltrates the academy, which it has, then I think that's that's a dangerous thing. And it, it needs people to confront conspiracy theories and name them when they pop up. And, well, I've had quite a lot of experience of this working for the, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust.
1: Now, you, you did mention earlier that the kind of these new candidates or the being put forward to Shakespeare had reduced in number in recent years. So Is there any explanation for why some aspects of this conspiracy theory have been on the way? I'm talking now from
0: my position as head of research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. And 11 years ago, we very carefully led what we called the authorship campaign, because we'd had lots of questions and, you know, it still comes up when people visit the Shakespeare Houses in Strapped Upon Avon, when myself and, and colleagues speak to school groups and college groups from around the world and, and other groups of, uh, of members of the public, sometimes somebody asks the question about authorship. So we thought we'd better do something about it. So we, we led a quite a stringent authorship campaign. And there are at least two legacies of this, which are still out there online as resources for people to find out more. One is a free e-book called Shakespeare Bites Back, and you can find that under shakespearebitesback.com. It was co-authored by Stanley Wells and me. And it's about 7,000 words. It's, it's a polemical essay, but it does sort of tell you everything you need to know about this discussion. And it looks at the language which is used in the, in the discussion. So, for example, we, we wanted to challenge the use of anti-Stratfordian and instead use the word anti-Shakespearean as a phrase. And the the difference is that if you say that somebody's an anti Stratfordian, you're allowing them to keep the words of Shakespeare, but disassociate them from Stratford upon Avon, where he was born and bred, and where he put down his roots, from which he commuted to and fro from from London to Stratford, where his family were, and so on. But if you say anti Shakespearean, what you're saying is you saying that William Shakespeare of Stratford upon Avon didn't write the plays. Well, that's actually against his whole notion of authorship and how he understood himself and the world and his art and where it came from. In the same way that you can't separate Charles Dickens from London or uh, Jane Austen from 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 Bath, etc. Why should you separate Shakespeare from Stratford upon Avon? So that was, you know, something that we were keen to bring to the discussion. And another resource is called 60 Minutes with Shakespeare," and we assembled some quite prominent voices. Stephen Fry is on there, for example, and Dame Harriet Walter and the late Sir Anthony Cher and the Prince of Wales, as now his king, also took part in sixty minutes with with Shakespeare, and You can listen to sixty people talking for a minute about some aspect of this discussion so it's it's quite a quick and interesting way of engaging with a, a, a polyphony of of uh, of views now. Dare I say, I think that's had some impact on this discussion because it seems to have quietened down a bit over the last 10 years. Uh, but who knows? There, there was a vociferous response at the time from the anti Shakespeareans, including personal attacks on, on Stanley Wells and me and others involved in the discussion. And so we, you know, we, we, we really hit nerves, but politely and clearly, um, but it does seem to have quietened down. I think also what's moved on too is understanding more and more about Shakespeare's collaborations with other writers, which just makes alternative nominees less and less plausible as, you know, producing a whole body of work secretly. Playwriting was never like that, is never like that. Because the minute you take the play into the, the script into the rehearsal room, things change with actors and people realising that a line doesn't work or doesn't can't really understand it or I can't stand over there, I've got to move back over here. And all sorts of collaborations take
1: place in the rehearsal room with with new writing. I think we've been through all the questions that I was going to ask you. I mean, is there anything really crucial that I haven't brought up that you think we should discuss?
0: One of the interesting things about this, Rob, is the number of lawyers who are involved with the authorship discussion. And it's astonishing to me that in 1987, the Supreme Court in Washington, DC, as it were, put Shakespeare on trial with the Supreme Supreme Court of Justice. And in 1988, three Lord Justices met at the Inner Temple in London to do something similar. And both of them ruled in Shakespeare's favour. What astonishes me is that it even got as far as that. <laughs> How can this be? And I've encountered quite a few lawyers who are involved in the anti-Shakespearean discussions, and it's something to do with proving the evidence and being in control and being powerful. And also, quite often, an anti-Shakespearean will want to challenge you to a public debate why? Because if they're lawyers and barristers, they're quick thinking and can make the, the alternative party quickly look silly or uh, lacking words. So I'm very careful not to take, in public, take part in public debates about this issue when asked to do so, because the, the legal mind you know, can, can make the Shakespearean mincemeat quite quickly if you're not careful.
1: That was Paul Edmondson. You can find out more about the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and the resources that he mentioned at shakespeare.org.uk. And that's all for this episode, but do join us for episode 5 when we'll be considering whether American astronauts really did step onto the moon's surface in 1969. Thanks a lot for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.